freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it, then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We've got to stop us. They're going to kill us all. See how the trouble you've started? Be they a government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. When the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it. But unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You call down the thunder, well now you've got it. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio! We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right, I think I might be a bit late. Never mind. Uh, this is Free Association. It's three minutes past three. Um, last time I was logged into Skype, I couldn't hear anything, so it's possible that I still can't hear anything, and there might be something going on over the top of me, but uh, if there isn't, then my name's Dennis, and this is Free Association Live from Newcastle Central Station. I'm just going to have a quick look and make sure, if somebody will give me a, a sound check, if you can hear me, that will be a good thing, So I'm flying blind at the moment. So what, I haven't planned anything, so it's all completely improvised. I'm just waiting for the laptop to reboot. 
Uh, it seems like we should be up and running, but I don't know for sure yet. So let's, uh, I'll just jibber on to myself, double check my settings, just to make sure. You, you get to five to four, you get to five minutes before the show, and then you can't hear yourself through Skype. So, there are things that are technically beyond my ability to control, and that's one of them. Um, I don't know how these things work, I just press buttons and hope for the best most of the time. But, it has to be said that I did have a, a camera that works. Skype, Skype's being slow today, so it's all it's all a bit improvised. But I'm going to switch to the old chat room. I think it's better better for me to be logged in on my phone to the new chat room than than on the laptop while I'm doing a, a show because it, it's not going to compute more than two or three things open at once. This laptop, even though it's new, it's it locks up all the time, so I don't know what's going on with it. I worked out what was happening last week though. Last week was a combination of uh, Windows downloading an update and OneDrive uploading a backup at the same time at the time I was due to do my, do my show. So I've switched OneDrive off and I've suspended Windows updates. So we should be alright this week with a bit of luck. Honestly, it's uh, it's always a dog's breakfast, but once I get logged into the chat room, we'll just have a conversation and then see where the show goes from there. I think that's probably the best way to do it. Seems to have worked all the last couple of weeks, so depending on how many people are in the chat room and what kind of interaction we can get going on, I think we should be alright for another spontaneously awesome type of show. I did attempt to plan something last night, but uh, I've got a piece of paper with a whole lot of things written on. And it'll be for another show, it won't be for today because I wasn't in the right mood to put it all together today. But uh, there is a plan, I thought, you'd be pleased to hear, for a, a movie quiz of some sort. Uh, I now have the equipment, the technical equipment that I can put clips on the smart pads so that's a new thing for me let's see if we can get logged in it's going to be one of those technical days I think but we'll, we'll work it out we'll work it out got in as radio projects last time so let's try that again so if you see radio projects in the chat room all right I need a, I need a password for this one so let's do it again honestly oh, the combinations of two-factor authentication and passwords and, and all the rest of it does my head in I've got an issue with the bank at the moment where I'm trying to buy things online I've got money in my bank account for once, so I've been buying things online, and they're, they're wanting me to authenticate my identity every single time that I buy anything, which is just stopping me, it's slowing me down. 
slows me down and it becomes a chore to buy the thing I want to buy right, I'm not going to be able to get into the chat room which kind of puts the kibosh on any kind of uh, let's try that again let's meet those the speakers and see if that makes a difference see if I can actually hear myself right I'm not going to be able to hear myself but I'm going to carry on regardless I'm going to assume that I've got a show going on and just just work it out as I go I'm going to have one more attempt at getting into the chat room it's definitely a technical day today definitely a technical day so Last night, what I came up with in terms of a, a format for a show, I, I bought this gadget called the Roadcaster Pro 2, which is a, a kind of audio mixer with some smart pads and some effects and things on it. Right, now Firefox doesn't want to do what I'm telling it to do, so let's ignore that for the time being. All right. So I've got this gadget, which is a big black box, really, with some sliders on it and some smart pads. And, and what it allows me to do is to allocate audio clips to smart pads. I've got, I've got 64 virtual smart pads with eight actual buttons, which means that I can potentially put 64 clips from movies onto these pads and then ask some ask get three or four people from the audience from the chat room or whatever to, to pick a number between one and sixty four and uh, and play the clips and if we've got I worked it out if we've got three people then we can do three clips each and if we've got four people we can do two clips each so we're probably going to need an odd number of people if we're going to do it as a, as a quiz and have a winner then we probably need an odd number of people to be able to do that I'm not all that worried about winners and losers because it's just a bit of fun on the radio but it could potentially be something where we want to or where I want to have, have winners and not so much winners I'm not going to be able to get into the chat room so I'm just going to talk until I run out of things to say and then play some clips and it's going to be it's going to be that sort of show so it, it was going to be spontaneously awesome and it's turned out to be spontaneously rubbish but that's the way this works sometimes and uh, you've got to you've got to make allowances for technology which I didn't really do with this format so uh, yeah, and I'm still I'm still not hearing myself, but I'll carry on regardless anyway. Let's find a couple of clips. I'll find some uh, right, there's all sorts of things popping up here. Which make which make for a disrupted radio show. But uh we'll get there. So uh, I could play Hugo Talks. Hugo Talks, I don't really like that much, but uh, 
I might play Hugo Talks at some point today. We've got a little bit of GB news, so I'll start with that and we'll work it out from there. Right, let me uh, share my screen. are calling for the nationalisation of energy firms after BP announced its biggest quarterly profits in 14 years, raking in a whopping 6.9 billion quid between April and June. Bernard Looney, quite the name, who's BP's boss, has responded by saying he's back in Britain by investing 18 billion quid in this country over the next decade. So my question today is, is it time to bring energy firms into public ownership? Well, joining me now to discuss this, I'm delighted to say, is the president of the Adam Smith Institute, Dr. Madsen Perry, and the lead campaigner of We Own It, John Bosco Mbargo. Now, John Bosco, can I start with you? Why is nationalising energy firms something that we should seriously consider? Is it your view that that would actually combat the large profits that the likes of Shell can make? I think that um, the most important um, place to focus really is on the cost of energy bills for families right now. There are estimates that one in three households could be pushed into fuel poverty as a result of the cost of living crisis that we are experiencing at the moment. And it is clear that public ownership would go a really long way in dealing with that issue. There, is, there are studies that show that countries that run on a public ownership model um, whether it's with respect to the ownership of the grid or other parts of the energy infrastructure, which is nine out of 10 of the top 10 countries in Europe, by the way, um, they actually save their, their people 30, um, 30 in their on their energy bills. France, for example, that um, owns EDF, recently took over 100% of it, managed to keep the increases in the energy bills of families in France to 4% at the same time as our energy bills were going up by 54%, right? And, and, and privateers across the world, um, and including countries across the world, own our energy system and are sucking out billions of pounds out of it every year, um, while families are driven further and further into poverty and energy poverty more specifically. So, Dr. Madsen-Piri, then, you've heard the argument there, and I've mentioned that BP's profits were £6.9 billion between April and June. A lot of my viewers, Madsen, are saying, well, hang on a minute. This can't be allowed to continue. Yes, well, we have one very good example of a country that uh, run, ran a nationalised um, energy uh, service, and that, of course, was Britain over 35 years ago. I remember it well, and it was dreadful. First of all, there was not enough investment. That is because when politicians decide where the money is to go, they do it to groups that will vote for them. They do it for parents. They do it for patients. They, they, they give money almost to, shall we say, running causes rather than to the investing in the future. The oil companies, the gas companies, are now investing in the future. If the government ran it, that money would be spent elsewhere. Secondly, when we had a nationalised energy policy, um, there was no competition. Uh, each, each one had a monopoly and the customer had no choice. And because the customer had no choice, 
that they were on in the interests of the producers, that is, the, the workers, the management, the civil servants, and the politicians. And one classic example is that when you wanted to buy gas in those days from a nationalized industry, you'd go along to the gas showrooms to buy your appliance. You couldn't phone them up because they had unlisted ex-directory numbers, so they wouldn't be bothered by members of the public. That is entirely typical what happens when you have a state monopoly. No, we don't want that again. Please, thank you very much. So, Madison Perry, just before I go back to John Bosco, the question there then is it, the argument around France, for example, a, a, a similar nation in size of the economy and, and other respects, in other respects, is able to shield its consumers because of the fact that it has nationalized industry. What do you say to that argument? Well, I say we shouldn't be subsidizing things. We should be subsidizing people. If we let energy prices rise to the level that supply and demand indicate, and the fact is there is a shortage of energy caused by the Ukraine crisis, the prices would rise and people would use less energy. And we should divert state funds to helping those who couldn't cope with that, who didn't have enough money. We shouldn't be price capping energy. We shouldn't be subsidizing it. We should be subsidizing people. That's my answer. John Bosco, what do you say to all of those arguments that actually nationalization of industry would be taking us backwards, not forwards? I think the assumption there is that there is um, one kind of thing that's called public ownership or nationalization. There are different models of, um, of public ownership, as we have seen in France, where it's actually saving people money. We also know that in Norway, for example, they're able to tax their offshore um, oil explorations by 56%, um, which allows them to um, pay 80% of people's energy bills above a certain cap. I think that one of the things that we have an opportunity to do at the moment with um, companies, uh, huge companies like Ball going bust, is essentially to create a publicly owned energy supply company to compete in the market with these private companies. The advantage that this publicly owned energy supply company will have is that it does not have to pay out billions of pounds in profits to shareholders from around the world. It will reinvest whatever profits it makes in saving money for the consumer. We've seen that with EDF in France. We've seen that in Norway. We've seen that across the world. We're just failing to do it in Britain. And we could do it just using the same competition that um, your other guest just mentioned. And so how would we pay for it then? How would we pay for the, the sweeping nationalization of swathes of industry? Well, I, I think that we could um, obviously um, pay for it by um, investing a lot of the money that would normally go to profits um, into the, the pockets of shareholders. If we took back our um, a national grid, for example, we could save 3.7 billion pounds a year. That allows us essentially to pay back whatever it is we borrow to buy back the national grid in seven and a half years. And that allows us that the money that we save in money that should otherwise go into the pockets of shareholders would allow us to buy 200, over 222 um, um, uh, windmills, for example, okay. and invest in other forms of energy. I just want to break, let Madsen Piri respond to those claims, because actually, Madsen, the, the, the image that John Bosco play, paints there for my viewers sounds like the land of milk and honey. Yes, it's too good to be true. Um, first of all, um, are we talking of nationalizing the energy industry or are we talking of having a new state energy company competing with private companies? 
companies. It's not always clear which of the two is being proposed here. I myself think that uh, when we talk of excessive profits going to shareholders, we should remember that a very large portion of BP shareholders are pension funds. Mm -hmm. And if you took that money instead, you'd be taking money away from pensioners, which is not really sensible policy we ought to be doing. Now, I think the answer is to let them invest the money instead of taking it from them in, in, uh, in, in confiscatory government seizures. We should actually encourage them to invest it, make it easier and more attractive. But investing in energy is what we should have been doing. We should have been doing fracking and making us much more independent, like America is. We, we haven't been paying enough attention to the future. OK, we'll leave it there, folks, and my viewers will be the ones that decide whose argument they most favour. But Dr Madsen Piri, the president of the Adam Smith Institute and the lead campaigner of We Own It from Moscow, Nambagwe, thank you very much for your time. But before we get into all of that, I want to talk to you, dear viewers and listeners, about Labour leader Sakia Starmer QC. Now, Sakia should be walking around like the cat that got the cream. He's being offered a political moment. That's the stuff a leader of Her Majesty's most loyal opposition could only dream of. The Tories are knocking seven bells out of each other in public. Inflation is higher than one of Elon Musk's space shuttles. And this winter, people have to forego heating if they want to keep eating. But no, even when he's facing Robo Rishi and lukewarm Liz, Sakia who takes the knee to divisive Marxist outfits like Black Lives Matter, makes clear he couldn't organise a booze-up in a brewery. This week, the former director of public prosecutions, sold to the British public as a fresh start from Boris Johnson, was found guilty of breaching the MP's code of conduct by failing to properly register more than £120,000 in land deals, corporate donations and Premier League tickets. Now, what Sakia's office has dismissed as an administrative error amounts to a failure to register on time eight interests. That's eight interests. You might think, well, one can be forgiven. Two, maybe. But eight interests, really? Were this Boris Johnson, I've absolutely no doubt, would never hear the end of it. It would be breaking news on the BBC. It would be headline news on newspapers. It would be Bullingdon Boris's shady register of interest. But when it's Sakir, oh, there's barely a peep. During his 2020 leadership bid, he promised he'd carry the can for any mistakes. Well, Sakir, here's some obvious mistakes. I haven't heard your resignation statement. Is it coming? Do you think he'd let Boris Johnson off lightly for administrative errors? There'd be cries of conservative corruption. He was forced to apologise to parliamentary ethics watchdog Sir Catherine Stone. And I want you to imagine the headlines on the front page of The Guardian if it was Brexiteer Boris that had to apologise and not second referendum Starmer. And then the footage of Sakia on the campaign trail during the leadership campaign was leaked online over recent days. Slippery Starmer stood on the picket line with striking staff. But now he, he's been banned by shadow cabinet ministers. He's banned shadow cabinet ministers, rather, from attending picket lines. And there's a clip that I'm going to show you. He even sacked. Right. Darren Grimes is, is interesting because he, he speaks his mind, which is fair enough. I don't agree with quite a lot of what he's just said there. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not a fan of Keir Starmer, but I'd, 
I don't think the scale of what he's doing is anything like the scale of Boris Johnson. So, if we're genuinely talking about missing some, missing registering something for a week, and then registering it and apologising, that's basically what we're talking about. So it's not the same thing. It's you comparing apples with oranges or apples with bananas or whatever it is. It's not the same thing. I'm afraid, Darren. Um, so you can be as outraged and as uh, rhetorical as you like, but you're not going to convince me that, that Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer are doing the same thing, because they're not. They're just plainly not. Um, yeah, so honestly, that's in, enough of Darren Grimes, I think. For the minute, I'll play him. I don't have to agree with what he says, though. I don't have to agree with what anybody says that I play. Uh, here we go. Let's have another, another try. It, this is a bit longer. It's a 14-minute clip. This is GB News again. Um, talking about Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss and the Tory party election that's running until the 5th of September. So all the way through August, we're going to hear nothing but this stuff. So I'll get it out of the way now and I'll skip a week. I'll not mention the Tory leadership campaign next week at all. And then maybe do an update the following week. But I'm, I'm not going to focus too much on it. I just think uh, it's early days yet. There's plenty, plenty to play for. Liz Truss is way out in front. A couple of people have come out to endorse her as leader. Uh, who were running for for the leadership, so she's got some backing from senior Tories. So I think she's probably going to get there, but it's still there's still a month to run, so there's no counting out Rishi Sunak yet. We haven't seen the shift in the polls that I think Rishi Sunak has been hoping for. That lead that Liz Truss has held for weeks. While we're only seeing a sort of scattergun approach in terms of the polling, and it is very hard to survey Tory mm. members, she is still maintaining that lead. And Rishi Sunak supporters are getting nervous. When I was speaking to them earlier this week, they were saying, we're hearing from Liz Truss's team, come on board, join our team, you want to pick a winner. So the gap is, uh, is opening up. I think the other problem Rishi Sunak's got is that there are concerns that he's finding it very hard to shake. Concerns about his... His timing in terms of the resignation being too yeah. cynically motivated, he was challenged on that in some of the debates earlier. And I think that is something that no matter what he says, yeah. he can't change people's minds sure. about okay. how far the contest gets. Let's bring Bob in on that point, because, uh, Bob, you are still very much in the, in the Rishi camp. Uh, let me just add one thing to, to that list of concerns that, that, that you and your man may have, and that is uh, Rishi being seen to shoot himself in the foot over boasting down there in Kent about shifting aid from deprived urban areas to help in the leafy Tory suburbs. Even people like Jake Berry are furious about that. OK, well, let, let, let's deal with that one head on, Alice Trickett. Good to see you again, by the way. Um, uh, what actually what she was saying there when you, when you unpick that is something which I was concerned about when I was local government minister, something I raised with him when he was local government minister, was actually the way distribution of aid works is that we, we don't pick up at the fact that there are serious pockets of poverty in otherwise supposedly wealthy regions. You all know, Alice, to the level of rural poverty there are in many parts of this country. You know the amount of poverty that there is actually in coastal towns. That was what we were talking about in the context of 
Kent and Sussex, and simply a broad brush which says everything down south is prosperous, everything up north needs help, isn't the way that it works. I think he was making a very fair point uh, that actually you've got to be much more nuanced about that. And in some cases, it's right to say that that money has to go into those uh, deprived areas in those run-down rural communities, very poor connectivity, uh, very poor uh, employment uh, and housing opportunities, or, or those uh, older seaside resorts where there's some really tough social problems. I've seen them myself. Bob, while you were saying that, for those who are kind enough to be listening to our conversation on radio rather than television, we were also running some pictures both of Rishi and of Liz coming in for uh, one of the televised yeah. debates. In your view, how has your man done in those debates? Because the commentary, totally independent, as you'd expect from the likes of me, say that he went from being really aggressive to being slightly more um, ameliorating to back to aggressive again in Eastbourne. How's he done? I think he's done really well, Alistair, and actually, um, thank God it is four weeks and not four months, eh? but um, sometimes in, when you've got a run of these debates, it's a sign of a good debater to be able to change gear and change tone from time to time, depending on the audience and depending on the topic. But what's come across to my mind consistently is that he's the one that's on top of the brief. He's got the figures, he's got the details, uh, there isn't any um, a flam uh, around what he's saying, and he's being direct with people. And I think that's really coming across to folks. I do think that, uh, uh, that, that people are thinking. He was in my constituency, actually, Alistair, yesterday morning, before those debates. 130 people were there, really geared up, and the number of folk who were coming over to me who were saying, well, look, before I was undecided, but I'm going to back him now. And some saying, look, I was going to go to vote for Liz, but no. He's got the responsible, the sensible, the, the properly conservative uh, solutions to this massive economic problem that's coming towards us. Bob, the next voice you'll hear will be Aubrey Allegretti, my guest here in the studio with me from The Guardian. Aubrey. Hi, Bob. I'm just wondering to what extent you think that Team Rishi was complacent at the start and relied on Liz Trust to falter, go into those TV debates, mess up, and for Rishi Sunak to just sort of appear, as you say, on top of his brief. Instead, we haven't sort of seen that performance from her. She seems to have hit the ground, sort of running, continued her stride. Do you think that there's been a, a complacency by Rishi Sunak's team? I think we just had to change gear from what was a parliamentary uh, phase of the campaign, Aubrey, to the, to the general public uh, campaign. Um, what I think is significant, of course, is that when we ended that parliamentary phase, Rishi had by far uh, the largest number of MPs backing him. And that says something, because, you know, the people who've worked with these people, and we work with all of the candidates, are perhaps a, uh, as well placed as anyone to know which one is actually going to win the election for us. Because all the policy debates are fascinating, but they're academic unless one of them is actually going to take the country with them. Who's the one that's plausible and actually comes across sensibly, calmly, competently uh, to the electorate? Because I think that's what they work. So uh, there will be changes of gear, as we were saying before, Aubrey, uh, and changes of tone in the campaign. But I think we're revving up uh, well now and the support that we're getting and the feedback that we're all picking up is really, really strong. Yeah. Let me bring in another thing that we, we haven't touched upon yet, but I know all three of us have been thinking a great deal about, and that's the report from the Bank of England in, in, in the last 48 hours. And I, I, I jokingly said in my introduction, given, given what the, the governor of the Bank of England said, could, yeah, who'd really want to win this contest anyway? But the thing that strikes me, Bob, most about that is, is that whilst contests always yield glitches, the differences on the Bank of England at interest rate seems to be about grasp and competence and Tory vision. 
And the fact that Rishi is a former chancellor, knows how the bank works, knows the mandate about inflation intimately, is not winning that argument, whereas the outsider, a former junior minister in the Treasury, Liz Truss, is. Well, that's something I think that my friends in the Conservative Party need to get a, a, a long think about, frankly, uh, because now's not the time for experimentation. Uh, now's not the time for taking risks. I thought it was a very good piece uh, on one of the other rival channels this morning about the risk of us doing a repeat of the Barber boom, which you and I can yeah. remember, Alex, uh, of the 70s, when Tony Barber, just like Liz is suggesting now, said, let's put more demand into the economy, let's tax cut, let's reduce tax cut, taxes, cut taxes, uh, mm. not fund it out of savings, uh, it'll boost uh, growth. It's exactly what Liz is saying. It yeah. ended up uh, disastrously. And we yeah. had major inflation, gave us a Labour government, and then all the problems that uh, Margaret had to sort out thereafter. Contrast, Nigel Lawson, you know, Margaret's longest-serving chancellor, arguably someone will think the best chancellor this country's had, uh, perhaps in the last half of, this, uh, of the 20th century, coming out for Rishi saying, this is sound conservative economics. We all want to reduce tax. I want to reduce tax as much as anyone. But you can only do it if you've got inflation under control, if you've got sound money. And it's just reminding my fellow Conservatives that actually we're a sound money party above everything. Because if you don't have sound money, that corrodes inflation. Uh, inflation It corrodes, it corrodes savings, it corrodes pensions. It actually divides society as well. Uh, and uh, I, I make no apology for us being up front with our members uh, and uh, the electorate with that. I think the electorate yeah. get it. And I think we have to say to our colleagues in the party, great, let's have vision for the future. But the vision's got to be based upon a firm, sound basis to start with. And to be crystal clear, from, from this is from Bob Neill's point of view, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that you're speaking on behalf of Rishi. You may be, for all I know, but that's, that's a different way of putting the question. To be crystal clear, you not only think that Liz has got this fundamentally wrong on what she would do with that emergency budget within days of taking over, you think it runs the same risk that Tony Barber risked on behalf of Ted Heath back in the 70s of rampant inflation, collapse, and then lo and behold, hey, they lost the next election. I think it runs exactly that risk, Alistair. And having lived through it as a, as a young councillor and activist in those days, I've seen what it does. Um, so that's why I think it's really important. That's why, um, say, Nigel Lawson says what he says, why Michael Howard has taken the same view, why Peter Lilly, again, one of Margaret's strongest associates, takes the same view, why William Hague takes the same view. All the people who've lived through it and seen it as practical politicians know that this isn't a pensible risk. This is a real one. I find that absolutely extraordinary because he and I are of a similar generation. You're obviously from a, a younger, newer generation. All right, so that was uh, half of that particular clip from GB News. I think that's probably enough to get the get the feel for it. They're worried about inflation from and a rerun of the early 70s. And quite honestly, there's a there's an element of a rerun of the early 70s going on. We've got oil price inflation and we've got potentially a, a prime minister that wants to boost the economy so or, or potential new new prime minister that wants to boost boost the economy to win an election so obviously they buy people off the Tories they don't mess about with it they just give people tax cuts when they're going to vote Tory so they direct all all of the tax cuts will direct be directed in the 
in the direction of the, the upper middle class and professional classes who vote vote conservative and the, the working class and the the underclass and the people who are living in poverty won't won't get anything as they generally speaking don't ever get anything from the conservatives they talk a good game but trickle down economics has been shown to not work so <laughs> because we tried it it certainly didn't help me and uh, I'm still waiting I'm still waiting for a a bit of money from Rishi, Rishi Sunak's plan to uh, help people with heating bills. I haven't received that yet either. So I'm waiting. I'm not not impressed with with anybody in politics at the moment. British politics is a is a mess at the moment. There's no talent there at all, really. So it's, it's a limited pool of not very talented people to pick from. Um, all of whom are being controlled because Keir Starmer is being controlled as well. That's fairly obvious. He says very little. One, most of what he says is agreeing with what the Tories just said. He doesn't ever really disagree with what the Tories just said because he's trying to keep Conservative Party voters on board with a potential switch to Labour. But by doing that, he's alienating the Labour Party base. So he's playing a, playing a, a dangerous game playing a dangerous game anyway my other good news this week is I ordered a, a rife machine from Hong Kong or, Ch or China one of those places and it's been sitting in uh, some kind of warehouse it arrived at Heathrow last night or yesterday sometime it's going to be delivered on Monday so uh, a new gadget to add to my collection I'm, I'm potentially going to be doing something on the radio with it but I need to get my head round it first so give me a month to play with it and work out what it can do and what it can't do and how it, how it might work on a radio show but uh, I'll figure something out so all of these things are potentials for the, for the autumn by the time September comes I'll have worked out what I want to do with it and I'll also have worked out how to do this uh, film quiz format. And we'll get some of that up and running. Uh, I, need to fig I need to also figure out how to get into the new chat room on this laptop while I'm running Skype. Because it doesn't seem to want to play a ball at the moment. Um, so that's a, another technical issue to overcome. All, all of these things just get sorted out one at a time. I don't worry about the tech anymore. I just do the best I can with what I've got. In fact, I never really worried about the tech, if I'm honest about it. I literally just do what I can with what I've got. And then upgrade it slowly and work out how to use it to the best advantage. Here's another clip from, from GB News from the Alison Stewart Show. This is about China now. This was specifically against the urgings of President Xi himself, and they have reacted hugely. They're making a lot of noise. This is what's generally called a firepower demonstration. And they're trying to provoke the Taiwanese. By that, I mean the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. And I don't think that they're aiming to have a hot exchange of fire yet. What the Chinese must be looking at with the Taiwanese is how they are looking at the Chinese forces around them that are provoking them. There's even were rumours that they were going to fire ballistic missiles over 
the landmass of Taiwan itself. It is really to see what they have got. And that's where there is a synergy connection with Ukraine, because it's the surveillance war, the electronic war, the cyber war that is so interesting. We're not hearing nearly enough about it for very obvious reasons. And it does seem that the combination of Ukraine, NATO, and above all, the US, have got the Russians somewhere on the back foot. Can and I the Chinese that, are taking this on board very much. Sure, OK, but within that answer... Right, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump to Alexander Mercurius, if I can find latest, his latest uh, output on here. Sure, the posts on Bitchute fairly regularly, so there we go. There's one that was about 20 hours ago. I'll only get about 10 minutes of this in, but it'll give a, bit, a little bit of context for what's happening in the Ukrainian situation. So this is Alexander Mercurius from last night, my time, about 22 hours ago, it was uploaded. Good day. The last few hours on the battlefields has been grim for Ukraine. First of all, it's now confirmed that the settlement of Pesky, one of the major strong points of the Ukrainian defence lines opposite Donetsk city, has now fallen to the Russians. And it seems that the Russians are also now uh, rapidly capturing control of another of these important fortified settlements, which is Marinka. And they also seem to be working towards encircling the Ukrainian troops in the ra rather larger, bigger settlement of Avtievka. Apparently, General Zaluzhny, the commander of the Ukrainian uh, army, has reported to President Zelensky of Ukraine that the Ukrainian troops have been obliged to pull out of the settlements because of the overwhelming firepower of the Ukrainian, of the Russian military, the, the, which the Russian military has uh, brought to bear upon these places. And there have been reports which I have seen, and again I want to stress this on Russian websites, that General Zaluzhny actually told Zelensky that the reason for this Russian breakthrough in this critically important area of the front line is that the Ukrainians withdrew most of their heavy artillery from this part of the front line and redeployed it to Kherson region. Now, I haven't seen the Ukrainian report, a Ukrainian report confirming that that is indeed what General Zaluzhny told President Zelensky. It could just be a case of the Russians making trouble between Zaluzhny and Zelensky and perhaps also highlighting to the Ukrainian people the divisions in their high command. But it seems to me that it's plausible. There have been many reports now for many weeks, um, many of them drawn from Ukrainian sources, that relations between Zaluzhny and Zelensky are not always terribly good. Zelensky has himself said things about Zaluzhny in public, which appear faintly critical of Zaluzhny, 
what, what, what the British like to call damning with uh, faint praise. And one does get the impression that Zaluzny, at least, has been increasingly frustrated or has been frequently frustrated by political meddling from Zelensky's office and perhaps from the British and American advisers who have been advising Zelensky's office in the actual conduct of the battle that uh, General Zaluzny, as Ukraine's primary military commander, probably feels ought to be his sole responsibility. Moreover, it looks increasingly bad in other places as well. Now, yesterday, in my last video, providing an update about the situation in Ukraine, I said that it looked as if the Ukrainians had ordered, achieved some kind of gains, made some kind of counterattack in the Izium region. Now, I'm going to actually retract that. What happened was that I read a report that suggested that the Ukrainian general staff was reporting a battle for a small town in the Izium region. And I got the impression that the Ukrainians were talking about the fact that this town was about to fall. In other words, that it was about to be recaptured by the Ukrainians from the Russians. It turns out that the reality is the diametric opposite. It is a Ukrainian-held town, which the Russians are attacking and are apparently in the process of capturing. So it looks like things on the Izium front are not going well either. But perhaps even more important than the events in Donetsk, even more important than the events in Izium, it now seems that the Russians, or to be more correct, the Wagner Group, this rather strange mercenary outfit that the Russians have brought together, made up, it seems, of ex-soldiers, ex-special forces soldiers. Apparently, they're some of the toughest military professionals around. They're apparently outstandingly good soldiers. Anyway, it seems that um, they have, they and other um, Russian and allied units have now not only broken into Solidar, the, uh, this suburb region of Bakhmut city, but they are now broken through the outer defences of Bakhmut city itself, that they've entered, this, that they're fighting within the city limits of Bak Bakhmut city. They're fighting, apparently, this fighting apparently going along on, along Patrice Lumumba Highway. Patrice Lumumba was the left-wing leader of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which gained independence from Belgium, who was brutally murdered with US and Belgian involvement, and who was very much a hero of the Soviets and of the international left-wing and communist movement in the 1960s. So it's unsurprising, perhaps, that a former Soviet town like Bakhmut has a street named after him. And it seems that the Wagner people are now advancing up the street and there is now street fighting going on in Bakhmut city itself. Now Bakhmut is a significantly bigger place than some of these other places we've been hearing about, Siversk and, um, uh, and 
Solidar. It has been the main Ukrainian base. It was the main uh, in this part of in, in northern Donbass, providing resupply to Ukrainian forces, for example, in Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, when those two towns were under Ukrainian control. A few weeks ago, whilst the battle for Severodonetsk and Lysychansk was underway, it was visited by no less a person than Zelensky itself. If the Russians are able to capture Bakhmut, and apparently it's low-lying, it's not on a height, it's less uh, topographically defensible than, say, Lysychansk or Kramatorsk might be. If the Russians are able to capture it, then this entire defence line that has been created by the Ukrainians, running from Siversk in the north to Bakhmut in the south, will have irretrievably collapsed. And I would add, looking at the map, I'm not a military person, as I often say, but looking at the map, it would seem to me that these Ukrainian forces north of Bakhmut, uh, um, on the front lines, many of whom it seems are just infantry, would then be at very danger, very real danger of encirclement, in which case the entire front line in northern Donetsk region, Ukrainian front line, would, will collapse. So these are big events, critically important events, which have taken taken place over this these last few days, uh, these last few hours. Now, it's not yet a Russian victory. <laughs> um, the fighting is still going on. The Ukrainians are still trying in some places to launch um, counterattacks, trying to regain lost ground. But the trajectory of travel, I think, is clear. And the other thing, and it's the desperately sad thing about this, is that apparently the losses, certainly for the Ukrainian military, are extremely high. As again, Ukrainian soldiers denied artillery support, often caught out, caught in the open, are blasted by overwhelming Russian artillery fire. I should say, by the way, um, in parenthesis, that um, the Duran um, a day ago received an email from uh, a person um, who has, um, who is apparently some kind of a volunteer fighting on the side of the militia, the Donetsk and Lugansk militia. And he made a couple of very interesting points. First of all, he directly contradicted my assessment that Russian troops are not directly involved in the fighting in Donetsk region, that most of the infantry attacks are, um, are carried out by the militia. He said that there, there are indeed large numbers of Russian troops there. Um, he also spoke about the fact that the Russians do indeed provide much of the command, much of the tactical command. He said that initially there were 20 Russian commanders, three of them have been killed over the course of the fighting, and that now means that there's 20. And that, by the way, corresponds with some of the information we've had. It's not dozens of Russian generals who've been killed, but some Russian commanders have indeed been killed, and three out of 20 seems roughly right. It's 
as I said, the Russian tradition for officers to lead from the front. Uh, okay, so there's a, that's a quick update from Alexander Makuras. He posts every day on Rumble and on Odyssey and it, it goes to BitChute as well and, and on YouTube. He still he still manages to keep the, the got the Duran is still on YouTube and his personal channels are on YouTube as well. So it's good commentary. Um, he tends to be quite long winded, but he does get he gets all the key points that are in there. If you prepare to sit and listen to him for forty five minutes, then you're gonna get, get a good update. I'd I don't do that every day, but I do it every three or four days just to keep an eye on what's going on. And I'll probably catch, catch up on what he posted last night properly when I get back home. So this has been Free Association. We're coming up to the end of the show. Just a reminder, Revolution Radio is listener-supported. Uh, we rely on your donations to keep two studios running more or less 24 hours a day, plus the Hawk's Nest now as well. There are shows running in the Hawk's Nest. Um, I missed Trip Rick's show last night, but uh, last week I, I was I was up till about 3 o'clock in the morning my time listening to Trip Rick because the show was very good. He does a, 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 like a music request show, a rock request show, and the, the combination of stuff coming from the chat room and coming from uh, his mates via Skype was pretty good kept me awake till 3 o'clock in the morning so I recommend that show, that's on the Hawk's Nest on Fridays um, I think there's a couple of other things going on, uh, there's a poetry show going on on the Hawk's Nest as well today I think, later on today I think Willow's running that so keep an eye up, keep an eye on the Hawk's Nest on the schedule there and, and on, on Studio A and Studio B Studio A runs more or less 24 hours a day. Studio B runs about 18 hours a day. Uh, but any any donation you can make uh, is appreciated. If you can do it monthly, if you can afford to do $5 or $10 a month, then we definitely appreciate that because it means people can start planning. If they've got regular donations coming in, I know how difficult it is to plan things on a voluntary basis because I've done that in a couple of places in the past. And uh, without a some kind of a budget, it's almost impossible to plan anything. Uh, so, my name's Dennis, Dennis Barker. You can find me online, usually as Radio Projects, uh, or if you look for Free Association Roundtable Radio Show and Podcast, or Podcast Radio Show and Roundtable, some combination of those words, then you'll find me on Spotify, on Player FM, on iTunes, on all of the usual places you find podcasts. Um, I do occasional things on Rumble, I do occasional things on Odyssey, and I've started doing occasional things on TalkShoe as well, so I'm experimenting still. This is the only one I can guarantee I'm going to be at, because I'm committed to the time slot, everything else I can do whenever I've got the time and, and the energy. But uh, there will be other formats being tested, there will be other, other shows being tested, and uh, whatever comes out ahead... The round table came out ahead last year. This year it might be the quiz or it might be a combination of the quiz and the round table format. Both of those will work for two hours. So keep your eye on the schedule. There'll be more coming from me. But I'm here every Saturday at 11 on Studio B, uh, Revolution Radio. That's pretty much it for me. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, I'm going to go back home and drink some Lucas Aid now.
You've been listening to Revolution Radio. Hey everyone, it's Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crip Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crip Rick's iPhone, thank you. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth.